Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about a prominent stock making a 20 to 1 split and how you should handle the fears of a recession. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you. Good to see you. The pools are open, buddy. It feels like summer. They are open, and I don't know if we've talked about this. I have a pool in my backyard, and that too is finally open. We've got the pump working, and uh, so we'll be taking dips in no time. You actually had the experience that I am constantly familiar with, which is you tried to save a little money this year, and it came back to bite you. Right. Shame on me for trying to save a buck. Actually, it was my neighbor who was trying to save me money. And when we got into the thick of things, we learned that maybe we weren't as well equipped to do so as we thought. So you you were trying to basically do the opening process yourself and then got stuck. Yeah, we got everything off the pool. It was looking good. We tried to turn the pump on and nothing was happening. And uh, that was about the extent that we were able to uh, to do on our own. We couldn't troubleshoot the issue. I'm sure our listeners will sympathize, but now that you've got your pool running, we can all be jealous again. That's right. Those of us non-pool people. So we're recording this on Monday. It is June 6th. I know this won't air for a couple days, but there's some news today in particular about a stock split that is on a lot of people's radar. And this came up for us this morning because I texted you with a joking panic because the Yahoo Finance app showed that Amazon had declined by like 94% as a result of the stock split. And it was just a funny screenshot. And I think we just kind of went through this. Yeah, this is the split, right? We haven't actually lost 94% of Amazon today. Right. And you weren't the only one to send me that, by the way. I think people were both genuinely panicking and then all the industry folk were just having a laugh about it. As much as it makes the news, people are always shocked by it. And it, I think it's just because of how the data shows up. Like all the brokers essentially will adjust by tomorrow and then the day-to-day price action changes look normal again. But the algorithm or you know whatever that math that's being generated is doing is just saying, well, what was the price yesterday or as of Friday's close and what is it right now? And turns out that's a 94% difference, roughly, uh, is at least what it was showing this morning. So definitely a scary moment if you didn't know it was coming. And Amazon is a high-profile company. So I feel like that one has been in the news, and you've probably been prepared and expecting something like that. When it happens for a company that's under the radar, and it's not getting all the publicity like an Amazon stock split, it can be more shocking, and you have to dig in and figure out what's going on. Or uh, recently, one of our portfolio companies... Uh, issued like a special dividend as a result of a sale of one of their segments. And I'm not even sure they fixed the pricing on that yet. It looks like you've lost a ton of money in that business, even though it was because they paid you out uh, a portion of the proceeds of the sale in cash. That happens a lot also with splits, uh, or not splits, but uh, when a company spins something off and you end up getting a change in your basis or you're supposed to get a change in your basis because they've kind of created this new position in your portfolio. So that that's some of the more um, 
frustrating, I think, bookkeeping stuff on a brokerage account statement is just trying to track some of that and make sure that it stays in, in correct alignment. As a novice investor d- decades ago, I had this happen to me. And all of a sudden, I logged into my brokerage account and I saw this position that I didn't remember buying. I didn't know what the company was. And I had a freak out moment. Like, how could this have happened? When would this have come into my account? Who bought this? What did I do? Yeah. And it, it took me a while to, to figure out what could have possibly gone down. And it was just a funny learning experience for me. So we've talked on our show about how you shouldn't necessarily think of stock splits as an encouraging activity, that effectively you're just cutting the same share of a stock into finer and finer pieces, right? You're just making it smaller. The actual value of the company hasn't changed. The business hasn't changed in most cases. But that brings up the question, why do so many companies do this? Because this is a pretty common thing. It gets talked about a lot. So Dan, why do companies actually do this? So on one hand, it makes it easier to buy. I think back in the day, that was more of a meaningful thing. Now you do have fractional share purchases available on some brokerages, but a company that was trading at $3,000 once upon a time, uh, you know, that's got a pretty high hurdle to overcome if you want to pick up a couple shares as an early investor. So you can increase activity in your stock by having a more approachable stock price. I also thought about the like restricted stock and and some of the employee stock option type issues that having a high share price uh, really affects. If you are dealing with a broker that does fractional shares, what's likely happening is that broker owns the other fraction of the share, right? Let's say they've got 10, 10 clients and they each wanted an 11th of the stock. And so they're going to basically own the final piece, right? Of what that final full share is going to be. They're creating the liquidity and taking the counter position and simply owning it for you. There's a lot of math and a lot of technical expertise that goes into that on the back end. You're never going to see that in your account, but that's what they have to do because they are still transacting in whole shares. They're just becoming the counterparty for you. In a an employee stock grant program or an ESPP or something like that where the employee is receiving shares, a really high share price can be uh, inefficient, right? If you wanted to give somebody a share bonus and your shares are $3,000 a piece, uh, you have no ability to give a bonus less than that in all likelihood. So uh, I do think that from a functional standpoint, that's probably easier from an administrative level at the company. And I also think for options traders, it's a really big deal. You know, when you're dealing in options contracts, you're typically talking about 100 share lots for options. 100 shares at $3,000 a share is a big position. It is difficult to take. Uh, And so certainly for options trading activity, for somebody that wants to do some covered call writing or write puts or, you know, whatever it is that they're interested in doing, I think it's a big deal for, for them as well. So even though we like to make fun of the excitement around stock splits because it doesn't actually change the company or any of the fundamentals, we at least wanted to review some of what does really happen. And I'm not sure companies are thinking about this when they're doing splits, but as an investor and perhaps someone in retirement, if you have a portfolio of a lot of individual companies and you need to find capital to support your lifestyle, it also makes it easier to unwind positions and use it to, to spend instead of seeing this company with a huge stock price and feeling like you don't want to sell it because that might be more than you need. 
and you know selling a lower price thing might be easier to keep your portfolio in balance as well instead of having to sell all these other smaller things before getting to that big one i think that makes sense as well so let's move into our main topic today which is really what feels like a disconnect in how the consumer is feeling and what the data is telling us about the economy and i think that this is really pronounced right now in a way that i haven't felt in a while because when you look at a lot of the data that's coming out about how the U.S. economy is doing, it's pretty good, right? Now, there's a few places it's bad. It's bad in inflation, in particular in the energy market and in the food market. Now, those are two places that consumers feel it exceptionally hard, right? We feel that directly on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis. If our food costs are going up, our energy costs are going up, we may have to adjust spending elsewhere. But on the flip side, you've got 3.6% unemployment at near historic lows. You've got increasing wages and still relatively healthy balance sheets for the consumer. You've got a lot of cash on a lot of people's books. But it seems like I get asked every day about the possibility or the likelihood or the what do we do if there's a recession. So, Dan, what's what's your take on both where we are right now and how are you talking people through how to handle a recession? Can I use Cardi B as a surrogate for the average American for a moment, though? I would I would say there's nothing average about her. But yesterday, Cardi B, non-economist, maybe non-average American either, tweeted, when y'all think they going to announce that we going into a recession? So it is such a widespread belief. Now, even Cardi B is tweeting to her masses about the potential of a recession. It is on her mind, who is, you know, she's seen wild success over the years, and I'm sure will continue to do so, uh, and engaged her following in a, in a discussion on macroeconomics in the United States. This is a complete so, aside to the topic, by the way. Why does she tweet something like that? Does she actually want to <laughs> have that discussion with followers? Is that just a gin up activity? Like, what, what is that about? I was trying to think about this and I was I was looking at what time that happened. Like when is Cardi B thinking about Yeah, what what time of day is she pondering the economy? Lunchtime. Okay. Seems, Lunchtime. seems reasonable. Checks out. Right. Right. Not like a three AM, can't sleep at night, worried about the future of, you know, of of workers in the United States. It's a lunchtime discussion. If I tweeted regularly, that's when I would tweet about the economy. It'd be three AM when I can't sleep and I'm I'm having weird thoughts. <laughs> Well, you and Cardi B would need to uh, operate at different schedules then. Okay. So it's on a lot of people's minds that there could be a recession or that the likelihood of a recession. You've got Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan saying some pretty scary stuff about the economy forward looking. Right. He basically said, prepare for a hurricane, if I remember. Right. Very, very negative sentiment. But the data doesn't necessarily show that. So are, is what they're saying that we're going to get much worse in terms of the trajectory we're on. In my mind, it's also a little bit self-fulfilling, right? So if you look at what makes up GDP in this country, the largest swath of it is consumption, right? It is people, it is Americans going out and spending their money on goods and services. If you're expecting a recession and you tighten up that spending, which is not an unreasonable thing to do at the individual level, right? If you believe times will be tough, hoarding cash and making yourself more secure on your balance sheet 
makes sense. If everyone does that, it causes a recession. <laughs> like literally by definition, if we all cut back our consumption as Americans because we're expecting things to be bad, they will become bad as a result of that activity. So it is very much a self-fulfilling prophecy if that is in everybody's head. And talk about trickling down from the top. If you hear these massive companies saying, we're prepared to lay off 10% of our workforce, you know, we're going to be on a hiring freeze, you're going to send everyone into a panic, like not only the people who that would directly impact, but, you know, people are hearing this and saying, all right, well, I better prepare for something similar happening. Let me hold on to my cash. Let me not buy this thing that I was hoping to buy. And you're right. It just spirals into reality if you're preparing mentally for it. So there's two things that come to mind uh, as I think about that. The first, and I don't want to call this a conspiracy theory, but as companies are struggling to hire, because that's been the story for the last couple of years, is how incredibly tight the labor market is. You've got this quits number, right? The great resignation, whatever we're calling it. All these people, <clears throat> un unlike you and me, Dan, uh, that have said, uh, <laughs> we're, we're leaving. We're, we're going to quit our jobs. We're part of that number, but you've got all of this, and then the companies are basically powerless. Is threatening people that we're going to do a bunch of layoffs in your head, we're going to take back some of that power? Like if, if you make people scared that their job could go away, are they more inclined to stay in the one that they have and be happy about it? I haven't really thought about it in that way, but I think there's probably a kernel of truth to that. I, I mean, that could be some gamesmanship. It's that song. If you can't be with the the one you love, love the one you're with. So if you're if you're out there and you're thinking about all this stuff, the next question is, well, what should I do? And first of all, as we did in our nowhere to hide episode, I think your choices are tough. Uh, you're dealing with negative yields and bonds. You're dealing with negative yields in cash. You're dealing with negative yields in the stock market, in the crypto market. Right? There's basically one thing you could have bought recently that's gone up, and that's energy, uh, and that's directly linked to the problems that we're talking about. So you're, you're in a difficult decision of where to hide anyway. But the next question is how much is baked in? Because if everybody is talking about the risk of recession, the likelihood of recession, we're worried about it, and we've already seen a sell-off in stocks, I think there's a real question to be asked of how much of that is baked into today's pricing of that negative sentiment. If we believe the market is very efficient, you'd have to imagine that most of it is priced in. Uh, I think over the years, I would beg to argue that the market is not rational and not efficient. Uh, so it doesn't mean we're at the bottom or anything like that. But people have been thinking about this for some time. This isn't a new thought. Like we are in the throes of how people have been thinking about our economy and, and, uh, you know, um, where was I going with this? I just put a slide up, Dan. I realize I just distracted you, you with it. I, I put this up That's and okay. we're going to put this on the YouTube channel. Cause I think this is an in interesting segment visually. Uh, I'm also going to put a link to this slide in the show notes for folks that want to listen to this on audio and still see what we're looking at here. This is from the JP Morgan uh, guide to the Markets deck, which is something we frequently reference in our practice because it's a great tool. It is just data. It's not their interpretation of any of this data, but they put out a really, really solid slide deck. And 
this the slide I'm looking at is titled Consumer Confidence and the Stock Market. And sentiment right now is very, very negative, as we're noting. Uh, on their scale, it's at a 58.4. There's only a handful of times going back to the 70s that it has been that low, if not lower. In the peaks, when sentiment has been the highest, the next 12 months S&P 500 stock returns at peak sentiment times is 4.1%. So on average, when everybody is super excited, the S&P 500 delivers about 4% in the next year. Pretty, pretty modest. On average, at the troughs, when sentiment bottoms out and people get super duper negative, the next 12 months deliver 24.9% returns. Almost 25%. In many ways, the fact that people are so negative right now is making me more bullish. It really is. Now, I'm a long-term optimist by nature. That is like deep in my DNA is that I think we're going to figure it out as like a people. I know not everybody feels that or thinks that way. But this to me proves in many respects that the worse people feel, the better the opportunity is. And so for anybody that's out there feeling super doom and gloom about recession chances, et cetera, this is an encouraging piece of data that I'm putting up on the screen and in the show notes. Right. And I wonder if some of the same people who are very pessimistic about potential recession and markets falling further are the same people who wouldn't buy earlier because they thought things were too spicy. And those are probably the folks who are always going to feel bad about everything and never want to buy in. Uh, I'm with you, Ross. I'm feeling very bullish and very optimistic. The other thing I keep reminding myself and others is that businesses are living things. They're not a static thing. They can react to information. And uh, like we mentioned, like layoffs aren't a good thing, but it is businesses responding to outside variables to help them continue to thrive and grow. And they, there are a lot of other tools at their disposal to do so. And I think the performance of businesses during the pandemic is great evidence to show that, you know, even though a lot of them, a lot of smaller businesses failed, which is unfortunate, but, but people were doing things to try to get through that period. And being a business owner, I know that we instituted things that we weren't doing before the government shutdowns and the pandemic, uh, to try to get through. And we found things that helped us survive. And now those are things that are helping us thrive as well. There's no question to me that the investing landscape has adjusted a little bit. And I would describe where we were in pre-2020, like pre-pandemic, and then even really into that first year of the pandemic as rewarding growth at any cost. And people were not concerned whether businesses were profitable what they seem to be concerned about were two things. Is your revenue growing at, in some cases, ridiculous clips? And are your gross margins reasonable, right? Like nobody was looking at net margin. Nobody was looking at EBITDA margins and like whether or not people were bringing any profits to the bottom line. I don't even think people were looking at cash flow margins and whether a business was generating positive cash flow. So I do think the environment has shifted and like you said, we're seeing businesses adjust to that. Agreed that layoffs are not a good thing in aggregate, but if you've got a business that is looking at its workforce and looking at its operating methods and saying, we have to get more disciplined because we're in an environment where profitability is now at a premium, that's responsible management in many respects. 
And uh, again, I don't want to I don't want to celebrate layoffs just for layoffs sake, because that's not the case. And uh, at a personal level, that's very, very difficult. But again, I, I, as an investor, I've got to look at that with a little bit of a, of a silver lining saying, I want management to be aware of profitability and drive the things that are going to be key impacts as, as a business owner. Right. And I mean, other ways you can see that is reducing spending in some areas. So if you're following these businesses quarter by quarter, you can see almost in real time how they're reacting and what they're doing to try to get by. And uh, I think probably over the next couple quarters, that's what people will be looking for. We've already been hearing some of that. So we've got a real disconnect between how it looks like the consumer is generally doing, how the consumer is feeling, how the economy is doing. And then on a forward-looking basis, you've got very difficult decisions of what do you do about it. Uh, I really think that long-term, the greatest moments of true pessimism, like right in those darkest moments, are the times that you want to be putting capital to work if you can, and at a bare minimum, not selling things that you own and not reducing your exposure to risk assets. I realize that's a very similar tune for us. Uh, I hope people don't get tired of us saying the same things every week. We're trying to bring a new spin on it and at least a new attack angle for how we bring this up. Sit tight is a very boring message if you hear it weekly, but we hope that some of the data we're presenting today uh, is helpful to understand. Yeah. Hurry up and do nothing. Hurry up. Get, Get busy doing nothing. If you've got questions for our show, things you want to hear us weigh in on, whether they're personal finance, business, or investing related, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address. We appreciate you tuning in. We will catch everybody next week.